welcome back to Nyacast. Today we continue our series on the new anthology, My Shadow is My Skin, Voices from the Iranian Diaspora, with one of the writers, Dr. Persis Karim. Dr. Karim is the Neda Nobari Chair of the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies and a professor in the Comparative and World Literature Department at SF State University. She has also been the editor on previous diaspora anthologies, such as Let Me Tell You Where I've Been, New Writing by Women of the Iranian Diaspora. We're so happy to have her here today to discuss her essay in praise of big noses. Take a listen. Something that you mentioned in your essay, uh, and I thought it was interesting because you were just talking about it right now a little bit too, is like this idea of how comfortable we sort of are in our identities. And you mentioned, uh, you know, I mean, your whole essay, which... Lovely. I love the essay. Obviously, we can all identify with this idea that, you know, we're trying to emulate a Western sort of aesthetic. And, you know, in like in my case, it was having a unibrow. Yes, I had a unibrow. <laughs> we and, all had unibrows. <laughs> and if I don't take care of it, I will have one now. That's just the reality of the situation. Yeah, but it became such a, you know, it, it was such a defining part of growing up in the U S is to have these things that, you know, the majority of the people there didn't have. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons why I think we tend to, or I at least can speak for myself. Like I grew up in Southern California. It's a huge portion of the diaspora lives in Southern California. And so I gravitated towards other Iranian Americans and we sort of created our own niches because we could understand these shared experiences. Mm-hmm. When you describe sort of defying this idea, the aesthetic of the nose, um, and despite the fact that your four sisters, three sisters go through and, and get a nose job and you choose not to do this, but you talk about your uh, sister here in the States as someone who's not comfortable, not that comfortable with her sort of Middle Eastern identity. So I wondered if you could talk about that more. Like what yeah. I was so curious after I read that line to think what was what was the discomfort? Yeah. Um, you know, it, I, it's only speculation on my part. I haven't really ever pursued that conversation with her, but my father immigrated here very early compared to most people. Um, he came here after the second world war. Um, and he married my mother who was French, who was also kind of an accidental immigrant. Um, I think that, you know, the, the discomfort for, for me and my siblings growing up in the U.S. wasn't the same, say, as somebody who grew up under the shadow of the hostage crisis. For me, it was like this idea that, like, there was no reference point for things Iranian. Uh, I mean, we had relatives who came after my father, um, but they they also didn't fully include us because we they saw us as kind of half-breeds, you know, um, and therefore uh, a little bit less pure. Um, so we we were, I have five siblings from my mother and my father, and we were sort of, we felt awkward in all these spaces. We felt awkward in the place where we grew up, in, in Walnut Creek, which is a suburb of the Bay Area, um, because we were, we our physical manifestation was more brown than most people. Um, We were awkward because our parents were foreign. We were awkward because we didn't speak French very well and we didn't speak Persian hardly at all. And our Iranian relatives looked at us as being sort of impure. Um, So I think we were 
there was a lot of uncomfortable feelings. And um, I think for my sister, it was also uh, this idea of, um, she, I think, was much more influenced by the culture of forced assimilation. My sister is nine years older than me. And I think for her, growing up in the U.S. at that time, which would have been the 50s, late 50s, um, she felt embarrassed and ashamed to be different. I mean, it was really a different moment. Her childhood was very different than mine. Mine was in the 60s when the civil rights movement had exploded, the Vietnam War had happened, um, and all these things. So I think that, like, you know, it's really important to think that, like, even in nine years, the, the experience of growing up in the States even in a place like California in the Bay area was dramatically different. So for my sister, it was like shame and anything that was associated with being middle Eastern seemed unappealing. Whereas I grew up, I think in a different moment and like, you know, when I was in middle school, my, one of my closest friends was Armenian and we hung out together and I knew the Filipino girl and I knew the Salvadorian girl. There was like a, a sort of a, a recognition that like, okay, we're not that, but we don't exactly have a community. Um, so to answer your question, Asal, I think that in some ways my sister's eagerness to erase her Iranian marked face um, was a recognition of that moment in, in her own life that she, she associated with shameful things, even though people didn't know Iran yet. Um, whereas for me, it was like, you know, I was like, wow, this is like a culture of erasure itself to get a nose job. <laughs> it's like a kind of, and it's the irony. Somebody pointed it out to me recently when I read the piece was here I was living in the United States trying to sort out my kind of Iranian inflected identity and all these women around me were like erasing their Iranian identity right and it was a very uncomfortable thing for me to to sort of feel like wow I don't I don't really want to I don't know what it is but I don't want to become not that right like that the act of erasure was so um potent um in this uh, for women especially um, and I think that like, it became really clear to me, like as a teenager that while I didn't, you know, I was awkward and didn't belong, I sort of kind of had this secret pride about like that I'm different, you know, but it, I hadn't been yet introduced to a culture of multiculturalism and there wasn't really a celebration of ethnicity in quite the same way there had been later, um, but I felt a, a, a kind of pride about it. And it was an unexplored pride, but it was a pride that I associated also with my dad, you know, because my dad was, um, you know, he talked about Iran. He talked about Iranian culture. He recited poetry. I, I knew enough um, that I felt like there was something to my physical affect that was connected to this rich heritage. Um, so the idea of erasing it seemed, you know, a deficit rather than a gain.
Well, it's it, interesting. It's, it's, oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead, Essa. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, because there's something that you mentioned in the essay too, that is in the era that you're talking about, it reflects the era of the Shah. Um, yes. And there's a similar parallel happening in Iran. And so it's interesting because when we, you know, talk about our own sort of as a community or any immigrant community, when you're trying to assimilate and when you're trying to, um, you know, when you, when you feel the sense of maybe embarrassment or shame for the place that you, you come from, it's not, it's something that's been imposed on you and is now yeah. internalized. Yeah. And it's like that imposition has to be always talked about to say, well, it's not because, you know, the small nose or the, you know, fine blonde hair is an objective aesthetic. It's because mm -hmm. someone, some entity, some power has imposed that on That's other people right. and created that idea. And what we end up doing um, is really self-orientalizing, right? We start to internalize the fact that there is something inferior about us. Yeah. Um, I mean, and this, that was one of the objections of a lot of people in the era of the Shah, because that's what they felt like he was doing. Monica, go ahead, sorry. So uh, it's just, this isn't, you know, you talk about persist this notion of being exotic enough. And I, yeah. I just, I think it's really, I think it's important to make clear that, so I grew up actually not far from Walnut Creek. So I also went to like mm. a predominantly white school and I felt the otherness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I just, I think this is, regardless of the era, I think this is sort of, at least with Iranian American women, there's this experience of being just exotic enough so that, you know, our peers and the people around us are not made so uncomfortable, but they feel mm -hmm. good about knowing us. And I think that we still see that. Look, I, I have internalized that, right? Enough people in my professional career as an adult have told me that I need to be a little bit more buttoned down and maybe I like speak a bit too ethnically that, you know, when mm -hmm. I am doing something like a panel, the, my immediate reaction is I got to straighten my hair. Curly hair is very Persian. It puts people off. It makes me look like I'm a child and I'm immature and I'm wild. And, you know, you were talking about like nose jobs, for example. I mean, this, this entire thing kind of looks at the nose job as emblematic of this, of kind of lessening our Persian heritage or our features. But, you know, when a lot of my friends turned 16, they got cars. My mom's 16th birthday present to me was electrolysis. She's like, this is what you need. You know what I mean? So it's like, even, you know, it's, it's imposed both within our culture and externally. And I think it's just yeah. constantly us trying to figure out, you know, how do we preserve our heritage and our ethnicity without being too much or too mm. colorful or whatever other words that they want to swap out instead of saying too ethnic. Sorry, yeah. that was my little rant. I just had to no, share. No, I think that was, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's on the body, right? It's a, it's a physical uh, representation of which you don't have as much control. And, um, but in combination with our names, uh, the way we were raised, our way of looking at the world, they become too much, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I was so happy that my dad, you know, kind of left it up to me to decide. I mean, he presented the option and said, do you want this? You know, I saved this money up. I think, I think he thought, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do for all my daughters. Right. But, um, I think in a way it bothered me. It bothered me so much that I was observing this, you know, this ritual of nose fixing and that I would, the expectation was that I should participate in it and that somehow there was going to be some 
net gain for me, I, you know, either in a husband or, uh, you know, being more beautiful. Um, and I think to, to a great extent, um, it bothered me because of the sort of intellectual um, other observations I was making about like, I'm never going to fit in. I'm never going to completely um, belong because it's not just about how I look. It's also how I feel, what, how I express myself, what my thinking is. Um, and, you know, some of that came through my parents' experience as immigrants and really came through my father's critical uh, faculties that he, you know, insisted that we have about American society and also his, his own sort of, I think, upbringing in, in my father was actually born in Paris in 1915 and he was an outsider in one place and then moved back to Iran as a child. And I think always felt like he never fully belonged anywhere. And I, he kind of gave me that, you know, that sensibility, I think that like belongingness is not about, you know, a, a destination or an arrival point. It's sort of like finding your way, you know, and it's a journey or, you know, to, to be sort of cliche about it. And I, I think in a lot of ways, um, for me, I'm so glad because I, because it was so gendered, right? It was so rooted in female aesthetic performance and the idea that, like, if you're going to get a man or whatever, um, you have to have a certain look um and you know recently i it was the the subject of electrolysis is interesting to me because when i was in middle school there was a guy called kirk weir his name was kirk weir and he he called me hair lip and he recently wanted to friend me on facebook and i'm like no way i'm a no way are you ever going to enter my world because you were so cruel to me when I was 13 years old calling me hair lip, you know, and, you know, I, I'll never forget the injury that that caused me, you know, and that was one of many kinds of othering, you know, and I didn't have a, I didn't have the understanding I have now. But when I was a child, when I was 13 years old, it was terrible. I felt terrible about myself. Um, and, you know, that was like from a white kid. And then this idea of like, okay, and then I got to have my nose fixed. You know, it was a very troubling set of circumstances for me as a female, I think. Yeah, well, you're I, trying to, sorry, go ahead. Ask, ask. No, 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 go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, it's, it's fascinating because you're trying to balance like the aesthetic desires of two disparate groups, right? Yeah. On one hand, you have like your mother being like, well, you know, if you don't, you know, laser hair removal, your upper lip, you're not going to find a man. And then you have a guy being like, well, why don't you shave your legs? That's weird. You're hairy. I, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's so strange. Also, I'm pretty sure this is the trauma of every Iranian American girl. So girls, ladies, <laughs> yeah. I feel you. Um, the guys too, my brother is, uh, well endowed in the hair area he just has a lot of hair <laughs> yeah. and and i always felt ter terrible for him too you know it was just like i i don't need this much chest hair i'm 16 so you know for him <laughs> it was also yeah. uh, a challenge and it's so funny as you're telling these stories i have no idea this is appropriate or not but here it goes so my mom is azadi torque and so she is mm. hairless there's nothing 
There's not a strand. Like this woman did her eyebrows in like 1965 and has never had to touch them again. And it is the most frustrating thing I've ever experienced. Cause on the other hand, my father, I love him, love him to death. My father is just covered in hair, the man. And of course that's the gene is much stronger with the hair. Mm-hmm. And I remember growing up and being, cause right now persons, when you're, you know, sort of describing when you were 13, it's like, you don't, you don't realize it at the time. It's just, you just feel things. You don't like, you don't have a broader understanding. And I would ask my mom, you know, can you, can you thread my face, please? Like, can you take care of this for me? And of course she had no idea how to do it because she didn't have any hair herself. So this yeah. was a sort of joke in our family <laughs> is me sitting here with my mother trying to like, you know, tie strings around her foot and do this sort of (laughs) weird karate move as she was trying to thread my face. And I would just look at my dad and he, he felt, I felt bad for him. He actually felt bad for me. And I would just look at him and I would blame him directly. I was like, this is your fault. (laughs) Why didn't you save? See, my parents didn't do that. They didn't save for the aesthetic sort of scholarship. (laughs) I didn't have yeah. that. They were just like, college is enough. I'm like, no, this was a priority. You should have taken yeah. care of it. So it's it's these sort of aesthetics, especially as women that you have to deal with in, in any society. But I think being an immigrant um, adds a layer that you have to deal with that, you know, obviously, you know, white women have to deal with certain aesthetics as well of uh, the ob- objectification of women, their bodies, especially body imaging issues. But, but we just had a lot of extra layers. And sometimes those layers were hair. Yeah. Well, um, somebody I, let's see, and let me tell you where I've been. Somebody wrote wrote an essay about hair. And I think hair and noses, we could probably do a whole anthology just on those two things and have quite a diverse and um, both poignant and humorous reflection. And, you know, and I think also the... It's, it's the way that bodies become marked. Um, and, and I think, you know, your point about your brother is really important because, you know, if you think a little bit about, like, the image of a terrorist, right, it's a man with hair, right? It's not a faceless, I mean, a hairless, you know, male figure. It's a, a man with a full beard or it's a man with plenty of hair, chest hair, whatever. Um, and I think that like you, those images get cemented. Um, and I think, you know, my son says to me, Oh mom, I'm so glad I don't have that much hair. Like your dad had so much hair, you know, he's relieved. He got his, his dad's, uh, chest hair. Um, and I think it's because it's like it carries so much more symbolism than just a body, right? Um, and it becomes sort of you get marked as other, you know, with things like a unibrow and um, whatever, dark skin or um, curly hair, Mana, to speak to your point, you know? It's just, it's it's, you know, the other thing that, Sorry. I, so when I, we, we went back to Iran a lot when I was a kid every other summer and a lot of the TV that we watched is basically like foreign TV that's dubbed over. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching with my cousins that were my age and how much they valued light skin, like colored eyed, like green eyed people to a point where we have this like green eyed recessive gene in my family that pops up every other generation. And even within the family, you feel that weight 
that specialness that's endowed upon the one with green eyes where there's, they're, they're going to have, there's something about them. They're a little bit more special or mystical. And so like, it took a long time to like grow up and be like, you know, brown eyes, brown eyes are great too. Yeah. Uh, and I just like, I think that, that I just want to keep coming back to that. They internalized the, the wanting to lessen the eradication of our Middle Eastern heritage in so many ways and having it imposed, but even in Iran, I think that yeah. was, that was what was oh, yeah. crazy to me. Well, and that people brought that from mm-hmm. Iran to here, right? Yep. So this idea that I think, you know, people were watching a lot of American movies and American television and were thinking, yeah, the blue eyed blondes that they got mm-hmm. it going on. And then they brought that same aesthetic here. And, you know, I mean, I still go into a, you know, a room full of Iranians and I'm like, look at them. They all got the same nose. Look at how many blondes there are. It's, you know, it's a, it's like a moment of cultural reckoning to sort of see that. Um, and to, to realize, you know, they were acculturated into this idea about, you know, to look Western or to have Western looking features was superior. Um, whereas like when I, like I did, I did the secret thing, which is, I, I don't do it as much anymore because now I'm in COVID-19 isolation, but I would look on the train, you know, I take the BART train out to San Francisco and I'd look on the train and I would be like, look at all these great noses, you know, they're like right next to me, standing right next to me on the train. And I'm like, you know, so I had a, like a little, you know, it's a private photo album called big nose spotting, right. Where I was like, man, there's some beautiful big noses and they're like out in the world, you know? Um, and I think that it's also, um, a a kind of secret pride, you know, that like I got a big nose, my dad had a big nose, all of his siblings had big noses and I'm one of the ones who kept it, you know? And I think there's also this way in which it's, it's a, because it's a refusal to be erased, I think it's like why I'm interested in Iranian culture and my sister is not, she's Mm. not interested at all. Um, And whereas like I had a moment when I was 17, when the hostage crisis occurred and I was like, I got to figure out more about this culture because it's, these are my people, you know? Um, And I think that's, it doesn't work the same way on everybody, you know, like we have our sort of epiphanies, but I feel like, you know, I resolved that issue around, you know, how I wanted to appear, um, long ago. And, you know, as a result, I wasn't preoccupied with that. I I had other issues, right. Or other idiosyncrasies that plagued me, but that one didn't bother me after a certain point. And, um, you know, my son has a big nose. (laughs) So I thought one of the things that was also interesting that you pointed out at the end of the essay, you make this comparison to Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And I'm not familiar with Star Trek. So when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is so interesting. Especially the, how are these pronounced in the show? Ferengis. Ferengis. Yeah. He's hilarious. You gotta watch it. You gotta watch it because it is so interesting. Well, the way that you describe it and the connection between the word Ferengi in Persian, the fact Mm -hmm. that it means foreigner basically um, which, as a side note, is hilarious when Iranians in the U.S. call Americans Farangi. I'm like, they're not, yeah. they're not Farangi anymore. This is, it's where yeah. they're from. That's an aside. <laughs> yeah. But the thing about 
Star Trek that I thought uh, was interesting is how much these images permeate popular culture, right? Like in, in Star Trek, it's not like, you know, it it wasn't a a sort of obvious nod wasn't what they were going for, but it's so ingrained that these foreigners are bad that even in, you know, science fiction stories, you know, you compare it, you say that it's, uh, this is happening in the 1970s. And of course in the 1970s, you have the oil embargo. And, um, so this sort of notion of these greedy foreigners with big noses, uh, is reflecting an anti-Arab, anti-Iranian. And of course it's an often used anti-Semitic trope. So, um, you know, sometimes it's interesting when you see how deeply these things are everywhere. It just saturates the the culture yeah. that we're seeing. And so it re, you know, I talked earlier about this idea of self-orientalizing, but it sort of just re reinstates that constantly. The images you see, even something that might sort of look like you is always the bad guy. Yeah. So you can watch Aladdin or even the Lion King yeah. and the bad guys are colored darker. How can a lion be actually <laughs> colors darker. Jafar, I mean, they're all supposed to be of the same ethnicity. Jafar was 15 shades darker. It's as if, you know, I don't I don't know at what point we equated dark with evil, but this is, I mean, even in our cartoons, you know, we grow up with it before we know that this is the suggestion. I mean, immediately when I started reading your essay in the book, what I laughed about was you were talking about the bastardization of your name. Oh, like yeah, the various yeah. renditions. And so I was yeah. kind of curious. So Asal, like, I think Mana and Asal are both kind of weird names too. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering, like, what are your, some of your favorite bastardized renditions of your names that you've heard? Um, well, people often would say purses, like P-U-R-S-E-S, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't know. You know, like, you know what it's like. Your name is phonetic, right? Asal. Well, I'm sure people said some horrible things about your name, too. I'm sorry about that. But, you know, like, I didn't think my name was so difficult. And my parents specifically chose names that were, you know, connected to the old country, but that were not so difficult to say. Like, you know, it didn't have, it wasn't like Shaka Yek, right? Yeah. Which is totally, you know, fodder for butchery. But people couldn't ever pronounce it they still can't right they they just see something that's not normal to them and they trip on it so paris i was called paris a lot persis um you know it was that thing where you stand in the line in school you know and you're like pause the long pause like okay i'm gonna try to say this um I mean, I always knew when it was my turn, right? Because they were tripping on both the first and the last. And that was remembered, you know, this is also um, Walnut Creek in 1968, early 70s, you know. Um, there were not that many people with uh, long, you know, ethnic names. My friend Anahid Kayayan, her name was butchered way worse than mine, right? Because they always tripped on both her first name and her last name. But I think that like that that's like that thing where you kind of become othered by something like your name. And then you sort of adopt that consciousness of like, oh, I must be so different because they can't say my name, you know? And then you 
unless you're working really hard to assimilate, you're sort of your consciousness is really formed by those episodic events in your life, right? Around people butchering your name or calling you hair lip or, you know, like, and then you sort of decide, I think, very unconsciously, you decide how you're going to respond to that. So you're either going to cave in or you're going to become defiant or you're going to be sorting it out for, you know, many years to come. And I would say, like, I was the one who was sorting it out for many years to come. And also, it bothered me when people, you know, butchered my name, but I never said anything. I never said it, you know, excuse me, my name is this, you know. Um, my nickname was Percy, right? My siblings called me Percy, and I went by Percy until I went to college. And when I was in college, I realized, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to make people feel comfortable anymore. I'm going to make them work a little bit. And I think that's also part of your um, consciousness is deciding when you're not going to, you know, accommodate people by straightening your hair or, you know, making, giving them the easier pronunciation. I mean, I could go, you know, like it was interesting. You asked, do you go by Persis? I do because in some ways I think it has this, um, you know, it's easier for people to, to get it right. But I have some friends who call me Persis, right? And I, I like it because it reminds me of my parents. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents called me that. Um, so that I, I respond to everything, but um, I don't go out of my way to, you know, make it easy for people. And my you nickname, shouldn't have to. Yeah. I saw, go ahead, sorry. My nickname is S. And it's stuck oh, yeah. into adulthood um, because my parents did the wonderful thing of spelling my name for whatever reason. No one knows to this day. There's no, you know, tashdid on the S. It's not, it's not a double S. It's just one S. But for some reason in English, they decided to go with two. And so yeah. I would always anticipate my name in the roll call in classes oh, yeah. <laughs> because sometimes the teacher would read it and would be like, asshole. And <laughs> so to prevent that from happening, I as soon as they would get to R, I'd kind of just shoot my arm up and say, oh, no, you're coming up to me. Don't, <laughs> yeah. Please don't say it again. I would just like to say that I have the word man in my name. And when combined <laughs> with the fact that like we're growing up with unibrows, I had a real hard time in middle school. So <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Leave it right there. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So I wanted to uh, ask about sort of the programs and what you're working at, working on right now. I know obviously we're in COVID. And so the situation is very different, but at the center, uh, I mean, the center does incredible work with the diaspora and um, I would be curious to know what projects you guys are working on right now. Yeah. um, Well, so it's in its early years of formulating its mission. And one of the things that I've really felt strongly about is that um, the centers, we're not, teaching diaspora classes. So part of what our um, impetus to be in the university is for is to um, to collaborate with others in projects that highlight the Iranian diaspora and all of its historical, political, and cultural um, enormity. And um, so the two things that I'm 
pretty invested in right now um, and trying to help both fund it and and realize it is the um, a documentary called We Are Here, which is focusing on Iranians in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, because I think that one of the things that people constantly are bombarded with is the idea of Iranians are other, they're outsiders, they don't, they don't live here, they don't belong here. I mean, you guys know this as well as I do. It's like, you know, everything about the way that Iran is described in the news omits the story of Iranians who live here, who are, who've immigrated here, who are deeply invested in the cultural, political, and historical events that take place in this society. Um, and yet, not very much exists that tells that story. How did they get here? What were the circumstances by which they got here? Um, how have they made places like California or the Bay Area uniquely home to them, even while they might still have family in Iran? So um, that documentary film is, we've shot a lot of footage and we're in the process of working on a trailer and um, working with a professional editor and um, trying to work with a musician to do a score. We have a lot more work to do on the editing. And like, you know, one of the biggest problems is um, COVID has like made it not possible for us to use the facilities on campus. Um, so that's one, one project that I'm really excited about and think is very important because I think um, we have a tendency to tell stories without telling that sort of hard truth, which is that it wasn't easy for those earlier generations who came here um, and that they've made it a lot easier for people who've come more recently. Um, and so the film describes some of these earlier immigrants who came here in the 60s um, who were part of civil rights struggles and also more recent immigrants who came after 2009 and the, the sort of different... Um, inflections of political and historical trauma that they experienced. Um, so that idea of also a diverse uh, immigrant story, I think, is something that is very important to me. Um, the other thing that I'm working on, which also has been sort of impeded by the ability to meet people and move, is a um, pilot project for a digital archive of Iranians in the San Francisco Bay Area. I got a small NEH grant last year, National Endowment for the Humanities grant, to do a digital archive project. And the goal is to sort of collect documents, photographs, letters, uh, newspapers that feature um, the, that long history because I'm also interested in the future generations who might want to know that history or do research about some of these individuals and organizations or families um, because in a way you have to have a record. Uh, the historical record does matter both in terms of um, that people are here and have, you know, made stories and made lives and created a path for their children and grandchildren. Um, and it wasn't necessarily a pretty picture all the time. You know, I, I think that's the, the myth of America is this idea that like you can come here and make yourself into a whole new person and it's easy. And 
um, one of the people who's in our digital archive, Parviz Shokat, he was almost deported because he was a political activist. And, um, you know, he had to really fight to get his citizenship, even though he'd been here almost 25 years. Um, and I, I want to tell that story, too. Um, and I also want to show the way in which a place um, can define the properties of a community, not just uh, based on an individual. Um, because I think in some ways we sorely lack in that department the idea that we're, we're part of communities and that our community um, uh, sort of supports us as individuals and creates opportunities and um, ways of being in this country that I think are important to, to recognize. So like for me, the San Francisco Bay Area is different than say LA. Um, and those differences need to be highlighted in any narrative that we tell about the Iranian um, immigrant story or the Iranian diaspora story. So those are two projects that I'm really pleased um, that we're doing. And the other thing that we're going to try to do is a postdoc fellowship next year. We'll um, open the call for that. And um, now I'm also interested in the idea, like, how has COVID-19 changed some of the dynamics of how we can do some of this research around vulnerable communities or around Iranian-American communities? So, um, you know, I, I'm once we sort of get into a different place, I, I also want to um, support some of my colleagues at San Francisco State in figuring out ways to do collaborative research around um, ethnic communities that share some of the properties that Iranians have, whether it's Vietnamese or, um, uh, you know, South Asian communities. So I'm hoping to do more collaborative kinds of projects as well. And, um, you know, we also are interested in presenting the culture of the Iranian diaspora as part of our regular programming. So um, we, we hosted a reading of My Shadow is My Skin. I didn't read, but I moderated the discussion because I think in some ways we need points of context around which we can revisit some of these conversations and literature is a great tool for that. So um, I'm, I'm really pleased about having something, you know, that we can point to. I wish, I wish more people knew about it. I wish the mainstream media would write uh, about it. You know, I mean, it was great that there was a, a book review in the Washington post, um, but I'm trying to get Catherine and, and Layla to, you know, see if we can get on some airwaves with it, because I think it's really important that people hear these stories. I mean, they're very many poignant stories of loss and trauma. And, um, you know, mine, mine's a little funnier, but I think in some ways, um, the pain of this community is still so palpable. Um, and of course, uh, the recent events of the Muslim ban and, um, you know, the, the kind of prejudice and racism that is being visited upon all Middle Eastern communities, but especially on Iranians through, 
through some of these, you know, mean-spirited and thoughtless acts that are being committed in legislation, but also just in verbal stupidity. Like, you know, um, I always go back to that comment that Lindsey Graham made about um, genetic testing, you know, for, in response to Elizabeth Warren, you know, if I, if I were to do a genetic test, I'd probably figure out um, I was Iranian and that would be terrible. This is a moment when I know that NIAC, people involved with NIAC and other organizations, feel great trepidation about what's happening to Iranians in this country as a result of um, growing prejudice and, you know, you know, the fact that a lot of comments can be made that go unchallenged. I mean, but so, and that's why the work that you do is so important. These stories that you tell, I mean, unless we are the ones putting forth the narratives, the narratives are never going to be challenged. Right. Um, And I want to make sure that everybody knows about the work that you're doing. So we're going to make sure to put a link, uh, not only to the book again, which if you guys forgot already is called My Shadow is My Skin, but we'll put a link to the uh, center's website. Uh, in the podcast description. So folks, if you guys want to keep updated on all the amazing work that Persis is doing, you have the opportunity to do so. Um, And with that, any other final thoughts, Asal or Persis? No, thank you so much for, you know, I know Persis, not only for joining us, but, um, and of course, Catherine and Layla did uh, a labor of love to put this together, but you did facilitate it. Um, and so, and you've facilitated the telling of these stories for, for so long. So thank you for giving us a voice and representation. We're, we're really lucky to have you as a storyteller for our community. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm really, um, I'm so pleased that, uh, that it continues to evolve and that there's a wider tent of belonging for many of us. And, you know, I, I write and I do the work that I wish had been done for me when I was a 13-year-old girl being called hair lip. And I hope that it helps somebody else when they're, you know, growing up. So I'm really glad that um, to pass the mantle to someone else and to see how wonderful it's, um, you know, the, the work that it does for people is to make them feel like, yeah, that's me and right on, you know. Well, I I feel seen, so thank you, Persis. Thank you.